Hi, I'm Ed Romaine, and welcome back to Mobilizing Culture. In this chapter, we'll be evaluating the economics of technology and how entire categories of business are being altered by a handful of disruptive companies. This week, I am lucky enough to be joined by Neil Blumenthal. My name is Neil Blumenthal. I'm co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker. For those who aren't familiar, Warby Parker is a revolutionary brand that reinvented the way consumers shop for and purchase eyeglasses. Although Warby has been Neil's focus for the past eight years, this was actually not his first venture into the world of eye care. Post-college, I spent about five years running a nonprofit social enterprise that would train low-income women to start their own businesses, giving eye exams and selling glasses in their communities in places like India and Bangladesh and Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. After five years of running his first company, Neil decided to enroll in business school where the story of Warby Parker began to unfold. And it was in business school at Warby that I met some dynamic guys, Jeff, Andy, and Dave, and Dave was complaining that he just lost a $700 pair of glasses in the seat pocket of an airplane. Which I've done. (laughs) (laughs) And similarly, Jeff had a, a pair of glasses that were partially broken. Andy was posing the question, why are glasses so expensive and why is nobody selling them online? And since I had run this nonprofit and distributed glasses around the world, I had been to factories that produce glasses. And in these factories, here I would be producing glasses for people living on less than $4 a day. Um, And 10 feet away, there would be people producing glasses uh, for some of the biggest names in fashion that have stores on Madison Avenue. Um, So I knew there was a disconnect between what it costs to manufacture and what glasses were being sold for. Mm. Um, And we started talking and then just the light bulbs went off. And that was sort of the genesis of the idea of, hey, can we build a brand that delivers great design and great product, but for a fraction of the price and do that online? Because we figured somebody was going to make a lot of money selling glasses online because we had seen category after category move online, whether it was Zappos sell shoes um, or Blue Nile sell engagement rings, basically categories you thought would never be sold online. Mm-hmm. And that got us excited. We just started talking about it more and more and more. Um, and Warby Parker came into being where it was this idea of let's sell prescription glasses for $95 instead of 500 And for every pair that we sell, it distribute one to someone in need because mm-hmm. we wanted to build a brand that had a positive impact on the world. Like everything, things take a little bit longer than you expect. And we had hoped to launch the business in sort of holiday uh, 2009, but everything was taking a little bit longer for uh, for, our first collection to arrive, for our website to be built. We had secured a placement in GQ, and we were told that we're going to be in the March issue of GQ, and we were super thrilled. Uh, Of course, it's now January, taking a little bit longer for the website to launch, and it's the beginning of February, and we get a call from the, the fashion director at GQ, Madeline Weeks. And she tells us, hey, guys, uh, I noticed the website's not up. And we're like, oh, yeah, don't worry. Um, We'll have the website up by March before the the March issue comes out. And there was a pause on the phone. We were like, oh, I wonder if we said something wrong. And Madeline was like, 
guys like the march issue comes out in february <laughs> <Like now. laughs> yeah yeah weeks before it's so funny uh, so we quickly scrambled we called our developer and was like hey just throw it up we didn't tell any of our friends or family that the website was live because we didn't debug it we know that there was going to be a bunch of issues um it went live as the march issue was hitting subscribers doorsteps um and then the order started to pile in um and the next day we went to class but we're getting all these questions um, and from customers. So during class, of course, you know, we had our computers out pretending like we're taking notes, but we were responding to customer emails, we were processing orders, and one of my co-founders, Jeff, has a tendency to type really loud, and we would always make fun of him for it. And you know when you're in a big group and suddenly like it, the room just feels a little bit quiet? So I All the it. other noises start to like amplify, right. and he's like furiously <laughs> typing. Furiously typing. Yeah. And I look up, and the professor's staring at us, not talking. You know, all of our classmates are, are staring at us. Um, and of course, we're typing furiously, so I quickly like elbow Dave, who looks up, mortified, elbows Andy, who then elbows <laughs> Jeff, and from that day on, we just stopped going to class. Neil and his co-founders decided to provide a service that allowed customers to try on eyewear at home. No mall or mom or nerdy friend needed. The idea at the time was unheard of. Disruption is creating the future the way that you want it to be. So it's changing the status quo and replacing it with something hopefully far better. I don't think that our goal was disruption per se. Our goal was to solve our own problem, and that was to buy beautifully designed glasses of, of great quality for you know a reasonable price so $95 instead of 500 the only way that we could do that was by developing relationships directly with our customers so designing the frames producing them and then selling them directly uh, which effectively would cut out middlemen right we you know, typically a brand would wholesale and then a retail would mark it up. Sure. Um, so we were able to sort of transfer all of that retail markup to customers, and that's why our glasses would be $95 instead of 500 We thought that that was a transformational idea. Looking for a new pair of glasses, are we? Seek no further than the internet. There you'll find us, Warby Parker, designers of superlative eyewear as worn by these stylish citizens. We offer our glasses for $95 per pair, including prescription lenses, by cutting out the greedy middleman. The quality is parallel to glasses you'll pay $400 for, uh, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we realize, like, oh, you know, we're creating this Warby Parker model um, and that they're, the press would, for years after, write, oh, the Warby Parker of X, the Warby Parker of Y. Um, but it just made sense to us from a business standpoint that, oh, if you have direct relationships with customers, you can deliver more value, so lower prices, but far better customer experiences because you have control over it and you also have access to customers to get their feedback and then you can constantly get better and better. Mm. And do you think it was like a hybrid of the design components, the customer relationship components, cutting out the retailer? Do you think it was like the combination of all those things that made you disruptive? I think, um, for one thing, the timing was right. So we launched in 2010. Uh, this was sort of the second sort of tech wave or internet wave. Um, it was also sort of like the second e-commerce wave. Uh, so there were a bunch of people that went before us that I think really helped set the stage for 
enabling customers to feel comfortable buying a product like glasses online. So nobody was doing it yet. So that gave us, um, you know, room to sort of own that market, so to speak. The fact that we were building one of the first made on the internet brands was novel. Um, and exciting, so then we got a lot of press attention. Mm. Uh, the Which fact, is funny to think about now, but yeah. Right, and, and the fact that uh, right optical companies have been ripping people off for decades, um, customers were frustrated by that and then got really excited about what we were doing. And not only did they want to buy for themselves, but they wanted to support their friends and tell all their friends about us. So we got so much attention early on that was, again, a, a product of the business model, a product of the market dynamics, mm. right? W when you look at the optical industry, you know, most people, when they buy glasses, they buy Ray-Ban or Oakley, or they buy a, a licensed brand like Chanel or Ralph Lauren or Dolce Gabbana. Um, maybe they go to a large chain like LensCrafters or Pearl Vision or Sunglass Hut, and maybe they pay with vision insurance. IMED's the second largest vision insurance company um, in, in the U.S. That entire ecosystem is owned by one company, Luxottica. Um, so you have this illusion of choice. When you walk into a LensCrafters, there's 40 different brands. They're all owned by the same company. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you have that much power concentrated, right, what we've seen time and time again is prices go up and the public suffers. Your latest disruptive evolution that you talked about during Advertising Week was actually taking the process by which someone gets a prescription and then orders glasses through those traditional means. You're taking it sort of in-house in a way by giving the power back to the consumer. Can you talk a little bit about what, what's going on with that? Sure. So one of the things that we're always trying to do is solve problems, right? The, the, the idea for the business came from solving our own problem. Jeff Bezos likes to always say that the best thing about customers is that they're always unhappy. <laughs> so um, That's actually very true. Yeah. And oh, passengers oh, at the airport, oh, yeah, which yeah. I'm about the, to be in a couple hours. The, yeah. the least happy. <laughs> so what's nice is that you can get that feedback and listen to those complaints and then figure out solutions. Uh, and that's not to say that customers are going to tell you exactly what to do. In fact, right, it, it's almost the opposite, uh, right? It was Henry Ford who always said if you'd ask customers what they wanted, they'd say a faster horse um, and not necessarily a car. But in our case, uh, a lot of customers, one of their biggest problems was having a valid prescription. So how do we make it easier for them to get that prescription? Um, taking time off of work, scheduling an appointment, going to the eye doctor, spending a lot of money, right? That, that's a pain in the butt. Yeah. So we envisioned, well, what if somebody could just do it from their home or office? Right? How could we create magic? People already have this magical device in their pocket called an iPhone. Uh, there's a lot of technology in there. Could we do something that could leverage it? Uh, and sure enough, we built this app called Prescription Check. Um, and what we do is that we pair your iPhone with a second screen, like a laptop or an iPad. And then we know how far away you are from that screen. We serve you up some vision tests. We ask you, can you see, can you not see? You know, tap a couple buttons on, uh, on your touch screen. Um, we transmit all that data to an eye doctor. They review it, and then we email you a valid uh, glasses prescription. Mitch, Mitch, outside can't believe it. But <laughs> if, so how do you like? How do you work with the eye doctors? How do you choose them, or does it matter? Do, like, if I come and I'm a consumer and I say I have to work with Doctor, you know, 
Bluestein because he's awesome. Can you figure that out, or does it have to be through your network? Um, it has to be through our network. Okay, got it. Right, because they have access to right our platform. They log in, they review the data, and and then we quickly send you a prescription. Yeah. Um, and how long does it take? The vision test, you know, can take anywhere between ten and. 20 minutes max, okay. um, and then we give ourselves basically like a day to have a doctor uh, review it, but, but often that's it's, it's very fast. Yeah. I mean, it's much faster than going to the eye doctor. Oh, yeah. Right. you're sitting in the waiting room, there's all those other things that play into going to the doctor, the travel there. Yeah. So if we can make that easier for customers, fantastic. And if you think about it, that's just part of our overall customer experience. Similarly, when we listen to our customers, a lot of them have trouble selecting the right frame for their face. Um, and as we've looked back, it's sort of made perfect sense because typically you go into an optical shop, the glasses are under lock and key, right, in a glass display or behind the counter out of reach. And I think it's because a lot of optical shop owners think that someone's going to steal their inventory. Meanwhile, no one's ever stolen a pair of glasses in the history of the world. Right? What are you going to do with a random, right? Frame? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, also to help justify and rationalize these really high prices, there's been information asymmetry. So that person in that optical shop makes it sound like you need a degree in rocket science to you know understand what type of lens coating you have, what your prescription sure. is. Um, so basically, the previous model of buying glasses has been all about disempowering consumers, and we're all about empowering them. So uh, we now have a bunch of stores. If you walk into our stores, you know the glasses are at eye level. You can grab them; they're full-length mirrors. But people are still not great shoppers of, of glasses because they don't have that experience. It's always been a guided experience in, in the past. So we recently, on our e-commerce app, we started to use the iPhone 10 True Depth camera, which is really cool. It basically uses infrared, and we're able to scan your face, take a few measurements, and then recommend frames that will fit your face. That's awesome. With new innovations like the Prescription Check app, Warby Parker has continued to maintain its status as a cutting-edge brand that is passionate about staying one step ahead of its competitors. I wanted to know where Neil drew his inspiration from when thinking about the future of the company. We generally look to other industries. So, you know, if we were to look in traditional fashion retail, right, there's nothing interesting happening there. <laughs> it's actually, and yeah, it's really sad. It, it, it's upsetting. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that some of these luxury labels call themselves luxury, and then if you were to buy a thousand dollar sweater someplace and then try and return it in a, a different store but it's the same brand and you couldn't do that right how is that a luxury experience um you right uh, and i'm not saying people should buy a thousand dollar sweaters they probably should never ever do that <laughs> right <laughs> i certainly don't but we don't look there for inspiration we look to hospitality for example and to much more complex businesses like you know hoteling and and restaurants right they have a different level of customer care than traditional retail um, we look to um, universities and other tech companies to you know see what the future looks like and try and figure out you know where is our path within yeah. that within that future. So tell us about next year and beyond. Like as far as personalization goes, do you see yourself exploring AI VR stuff to like you know continue to like give the person real-time ability to make choices and transact, or where do you see the evolution moving toward? You know, I think we've always 
try to move fast um, technologically, but also really believe in building things that people want and need. And you know, use cases are really important. And take Google Glass for example. Um, that was uh, frankly a failure of hubris, right? The thought was like you're going to radically change the world by creating this device that every single person on the planet is going to wear every single day. Yeah, you can't describe one single use case. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, if they had created that initial product, maybe for industry mm. or a very specific industry and use case, um, you know, maybe that would have taken off and then they could have improved on, improved on, improved on it. And then one sort of day the same with snap nuts. lenses, really. That, that Absolutely. The spectacles, uh, right? That's been an utter failure. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's obviously something exciting when you go really big, but I we believe we're in a time and place where you're able to rapidly improve and refine things. So the best thing to do would be create something that is useful and then just make it better and better and better and broaden right its appeal, but at least start with a specific customer segment. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel pressure now because you all are ubiquitous sort of with cool eyewear? to sort of make that broader or do you still feel like it's important to stick with your core competencies? Um, we think it's the latter. You know, there's no question that like, I'd love to launch an apparel line, right? I, I have a picture in my mind of exactly what Warby Parker apparel and ready to wear would look like. But strategically, it doesn't make sense. And, mm. and we've always said internally, we got some good advice um, actually from Patty McCord who ran HR for Netflix for many years. She said, strategy is what you say no to. And ultimately, I think our focus in particular in the optical category on prescription glasses, on sunglasses, has enabled us to have this, you know, really amazing journey in this fast growth trajectory. Because um, ultimately, right, we're in a highly, highly competitive environment, I mean, across any category. Um, the companies that provide the best holistic experience are the ones that are going to succeed. Mm -hmm. um, and those that are the most focused are able to provide the best holistic experience. And, and what I mean by holistic experience, it's the moment somebody hears about your brand, did it come from a credible source to the consideration to shop, to shopping, to transacting, to uh, using that product or service on an ongoing basis, the after-sale customer service, uh, the engagement uh, afterwards, right? All of that has to be perfect because the world is so competitive and expectations are so, so high. Yeah. Um, and the only way for you to create that you know, exceptional customer experience is to control it yeah. um, and to constantly iterate on it. How much has mobile been a part of that effort and where do you see it folding into your larger plans? Uh, so mobile's everything uh, today and it did take a major effort for us to reorient uh, multiple teams to really be mobile first. And one of our core values is embrace change and one of the things I do when I'm telling new hires about our core values, in particular, this value embrace change, is that the one true constant now in the world is change. Um, change is happening at a faster rate than, than ever before. Um, and we have to be comfortable with it as a status quo. Uh, and what I mean by that is that that change manifests itself in 
many ways throughout the business, but one of the ways is through um, the way we consume media um, and the way that we sell, the channels that we use. And already we're only seven years old mm. and we've now been through drastic channel change. So when we started, uh, we were basically e-commerce, but desktop e-commerce, right? Now it's all about mobile commerce. Uh, we've experimented with social commerce. We now have uh, 60 plus stores around the, the country and in Canada. Um, so we know that these channels are gonna continue to evolve um, and they'll probably leverage AR and VR, we'll probably let some of the entertainment industry sort of figure that out or go first and spend lots of money and then we can be a fast yeah, follower. Yeah. But I view mobile as right the channel du jour today and uh, for a long time, but I also know that these things are gonna constantly evolve and I need to make sure that I'm building uh, a culture that embraces that change and hiring individuals that are learners and can continue to grow and you know exceed regardless of, of what those mediums are. One of the most unique aspects of the Warby Parker business model is its buy a pair, give a pair mission. For every pair of glasses purchased, Warby donates a pair of glasses to someone in need. With over 3 million pairs of glasses donated to date, this is not just another small detail within the company. You know, we very much view ourselves as a mission-driven organization, as a values-led uh, company. Probably the best example of that is for every pair of glasses we sell, we distribute one to someone in need. We've now distributed over three and a half million pairs that's amazing. around the world, which, um, yeah, it's, it's actually when I say that out loud, right? That, that's I mean, it's a huge a number. number. Yeah, it's um, a huge number. And what's also really cool is that we've now started distributing more and more glasses in the U.S., so in particular in New York City and in Baltimore. Um, so that's incredibly exciting. Uh, it's also depressing the fact that we estimate that in New York City public schools, there's over 200,000 children that don't have the glasses they need. Yeah, um, We're going to solve that. This year, we'll distribute 20,000 pairs of glasses alone in New York City public schools, um, and, and we'll figure out a way to, to scale that. Um, but the thing is, like these issues are solvable, um, which is uh, reassuring. We just need to create alliances and coalitions and ensure that there's enough resources and willpower to, to make it happen. Hi, I'm Ella Goodwin, and I am the president of Vision Spring. Vision Spring is a social enterprise. We are creating access to radically affordable eyeglasses in emerging and frontier markets, which means that we are creating the possibility of people who earn less than $4 a day to be able to access vision correction to gain eyeglasses at what is the equivalent of one to two days of their wages. And there's a direct correlation between clear vision and people's ability to increase their income earning potential and really navigate that path out of poverty. Warby Parker and Vision Spring go back to the early days of both organizations. Neil Blumenthal was one of Vision Spring's early team members, and he worked with us to establish one of our most successful programs, which is the Reading Glasses for Improved Livelihoods program in Bangladesh. When he first started that program, he helped to train the first 50 community health workers and sell the first 200 pairs of glasses in Bangladesh. And 10 years later, I can share that we have screened 4.5 million people. We have sold a million pairs of glasses in villages through a cumulative of 33,000 women who have been trained to sell reading 
losses to those in their community. I'm often asked, you know, you know, your buy a pair, give a pair programs, some of the other initiatives that, that you do, how do you justify that sort of financially? Um, and the truth is, is that there's no easy way to do that. Um, but we also don't think of it as a customer acquisition tool. Um, if I think about one of the benefits of doing it, it's actually probably more on the talent acquisition front. So uh, when we ask people, why do you want to come and work for Warby Parker? It's always about our mission and our values and the fact that we've distributed right millions of pairs of glasses to people in need. Um, and, you know, in this hyper, hyper competitive market for great talent, right, mission-led companies are going to be able to uh, attract and retain the best and the brightest. Mm. Has the mission ever changed since the company's inception? Uh, no. Um, if anything, you know, I think our ambition continues to get bigger and bigger. And what I mean by that is that, you know, every time we move forward, right, the goalposts just get bigger but pushed out a little farther. Yeah. And ultimately, if you could, what would you do for the world? Um, we would ensure that everybody had clear vision. Mm. Which is a fairly noble cause. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how the idea of buy a pair, give a pair started with the company. Um, it really started as we were, you know, conceiving the idea, uh, and we wanted to provide glasses for a fraction of what they typically cost. Um, and we thought that we could bring down the price from five hundred dollars to ninety-five dollars. But during that business planning, we realized, well, even at ninety-five dollars, there was hundreds of millions of people around the world that didn't have access. And that was something that I saw firsthand when I was working in nonprofit before business school. So as a founding team, we committed to distribute one pair of glasses for every pair that we sold. And we thought that made more sense than necessarily committing to um, a certain dollar amount, for example, like percent of sales or percent of profits. Because uh, frankly, change is when somebody has that pair of glasses on their face and they can now see and be a productive member of, of society. Um, it's not necessarily a dollar amount that maybe could be manipulated if, you know, us founders weren't running the company. Um, so we thought that we could make this commitment, figure out how to make it work financially, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, have it tied so closely to the brand that it would always be part of who we are. Do you think consumers would have connected to the brand as quickly without it? Um, you know, I, I often think about this. Probably not, but I think we still would have been on a pretty strong trajectory. But I do think that we live in a world where uh, there's a lot of choice and there's a lot of access to information. So consumers can choose to buy from brands that have great value so that they can have their cake and, and eat it too. I think those are the brands that you see being successful today are living their values, are pretty transparent uh, about that. And um, even if they're not transparent, there's forced transparency, right? Because you can easily find out how uh, a company treats their employees, how um, they impact the environment, what their supply chain is like. If an employee has a specific cause that's dear to them, do you guys have anything where, where you extend any resources where they can help like amplify that? Yeah, so we work with a, uh, a bunch of different nonprofits and we try and add value in, in different ways. Um, one is through volunteering, but 
we believe in leverage. Uh, so it's not like Habitat for Humanity, um, where you get a bunch of people who have never framed a house before frame a house. What we do is we try and leverage, you know, our email marketing team and let's say our creative team to help a nonprofit create an awesome annual appeal, so that way they can double the amount of money that they raised from the previous year. Um, so uh, we definitely work with a bunch of different organizations that hopefully right fit within our defined mission but also are chosen by our employees um, one of the nice things with having stores now is that we often have our store teams pick you know local nonprofits that that we can work with i love that that's awesome thanks so much to my guest neil blumenthal if you want to stay up to date with neil and warby parker follow them at warby parker on pretty much uh, every social channel there is and then at neil blumenthal on every social channel there is mobilizing culture is a production of cargo and at will radio you can follow cargo on twitter at cargo and on instagram at cargo mobile please visit cargo.com that's k-a-r-g-o.com to stay up to date with all the latest next time on mobilizing culture i think there's a lot to be said for the first dating app that has a mission to end misogyny, which is so rampant in dating.